Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I am flying solo today, but I have a great guest on front who is the ex-VP of Engineering at WeWork and now the CEO of a company called Wilco, which is focused on upskilling for devs, giving them hands-on experience through simulated real-world engineering challenges. We talk a ton on this show about developers' need for learning and growth and development, how important that is for them and deciding what you know job they want to take. So we're excited to have On on the program. On, welcome. Thank you so much, Ben. Great to be here. So first thing we do when we start, we always just ask folks, tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of software and technology. Like what got you started as a kid coding and, and you know, what led you to um, sort of your early career? Sure. So I must have been something like six or seven when I uh, wrote my first line of code. Uh, it was in BASIC uh, on an IBM XT. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had a, an XT nice. in the house, which was not common. And I was just fascinated by <laughs> what could be done with it. And, you know, wrote a few lines of basic, right. you know, with the numbers at the front, you had to do like 10, 20 to leave spaces for other uh, lines of code to get in between and just started doing things. And ever since then, I've been loving it. Very cool. So did you study computer science or engineering at university or did you go straight into like working? Um, I did study computer science. So um, I, I worked in tech um, after high school for a bit, um, just uh you know, doing customer support and things like that. But just like any Israeli, I, uh, I joined the IDF. And mm-hmm. then after I uh, completed my service, I went to the university, to Tel Aviv University, studied computer science. And about halfway through the degree, I got my first job at a real company um, that was applied materials. Nice. I was there for about a year. And then I realized that I belong in the startup world. And yeah. Didn't look back since. Very cool. So yeah, I mean, for folks who don't know, uh, we've had some other guests on um, from Israel. There is sort of this amazing pipeline from doing the compulsory military service to learning technology and cybersecurity to going into the startup ecosystem, which is quite rich in Israel. And I guess specifically Tel Aviv. Do I have that correct? Yeah, you do have that correct. But that's not the only way to get into tech. So even though I I was in in a good place uh, in the army, I did not work with anything having to do with software. Um, but like, like we said earlier, I did study computer science after that and and that sort of helped me land my first job. Gotcha. And you said you worked at applied materials. That's like actually hardware, semiconductors, stuff like that. Uh, that is hardware semiconductors, but I worked on this machine that would inspect the wafers Mm. in the manufacturing process to make sure they have no defects and, you know, to, right measure the distance between um, between two conductors and things like that. Um, so it, it was really cool. It was connected to an electronic uh, electron microscope Neat. and lots of hardware that was just, you know, moving wafers around and everything right. would crash every once in a while. It was a pre-production system. It would crash and sometimes right. it would break a wafer. <laughs> Were you working then, at like the embedded <laughs> level there? You were that was like you were you were kind of like working close to the metal. Um, so most of the code was C algorithms for yeah. uh, image processing. Gotcha. Uh, but then the application layer was C sharp. Um, mm. So I did a lot of that. Um, .NET C sharp. Yeah, that that was fun. But 
you know, w- when everything you do breaks a wafer and, you know, then you need a vacuum, and <laughs> it could take like two hours for the machine to spin up again. You right. really learn right. how to be very careful with what you do. Right. Got to have some extra testing before you push that to production. So, uh, yeah, that was your early career. Talk to us a little bit about um, the role I mentioned. Um, you were a VP of engineering at WeWork. That was an incredibly fast growing company. Um, you know, I'm sure there were lots of people being hired and lots of different ideas about things to build all at once. How did you find yourself in that role? And what was it like to work um, you know, at one of those rocket ship type startups? Yeah, uh, WeWork was fun. Boring, you know, nothing out of the ordinary happened. It was all just smooth sailing. Uh, <laughs> Very calm. Yeah. A boring yeah, exactly. CEO, always behind, behind the scenes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I was at the time, of, b- before joining WeWork, I was at a company called Handy. Uh, we were doing home services mm-hmm. on demand, and um, yes, I was fascinated with the idea of WeWork, and I had a few friends working there. And uh, at some point, I decided that um, I want to leave Handy. And after that, I pretty quickly realized that WeWork is the place for me. What was cool about WeWork right. was that it's it's what I call a full stack business, meaning technology is building the business itself, not the mm-hmm. Not you know some sh- uh, shrink wrap product that you're then selling. You're actually building right. that business. So maybe yeah. a great analogy would be there are two ways for you to be working on software for clinics. Let's say one way is that you could be working for a software company that is building software for clinics and selling it to clinics. And then right. you know if if you're asked how much the company is selling, you probably have no idea and how it's selling. That's also something that you probably <laughs> right. don't know, uh, but you probably know a lot about doctors and, and patients and nurses and the ratios between them, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Another approach would be a company that actually um, is owning clinics and operating them at a high scale using software. Right. And when you do that, right. it's really cool because then software engineers are actually very aligned with the business. They know what's happening. They know right. that makes sense. how the business is running. And I found that to be really cool. And that's true for WeWork. It's true for companies like Amazon and Uber um, and Airbnb and a few others. So I really like that model. Um, we were building software that was basically running a thousand buildings around the world. And right. that was really cool. <laughs> I like the idea, right? You're building software, but also you understand how that's going into operations how that's affecting everything right from real estate to the way people are getting, you know, reservations for rooms to the way people are booking events. And, you know, WeWork was, it introduced a new category for this kind of flexible on-demand office space, which now we're seeing a lot more of. I guess one of the things I find fascinating and I would like to ask you is like, you mentioned what a boring quote quote unquote company it was, you know, it, it kind of struggled its way towards the IPO at the end, but fundamentally, it feels like the thesis was correct. And or at least post pandemic, the thesis was very correct. Like, I myself have moved to a co working space, many people I know, you know, are moving to a hybrid system. It really feels like the vision at least is much closer to what work looks like today um, than it was, you know, 10 years ago or something like that. Totally. And you know, when I joined WeWork, one of the criticism we would keep hearing is that, you know, what's going to happen in a downturn? Um, You're going to be stuck with very expensive real estate and you won't be able to do anything with it. Uh, No one is going to want to come to WeWork. And we always said, 
you know, kind of like uh, Bane was born in chaos, Bane from, from Batman. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we work was born in a crisis. The, uh, the, right. uh, the, the seeds of WeWork were started in, in 2008 and, and then WeWork was started yeah. in, in uh, 2010. So we always thought that it's not actually going to be a problem. During a crisis, you'll actually see more people uh, becoming freelancers yeah. and wanting to work out of a place where they can actually meet people. Uh, you'll see new businesses totally. popping up. And you know what? COVID was probably the worst nightmare you could think of for a company that's doing shared spaces, right? right. Because COVID was a problem, both from the space perspective and the shared perspective. It actually targeted totally. both aspects of it. And and guess what? Yeah. You know, Yes, occupancy went, went down, but it didn't go down that significantly. And the expensive real estate was actually easy to uh, restructure or uh, make more profitable when needed. So, right. you know, we, in a way we were vindicated, uh, not completely. It's not as if the company has lived up to its crazy valuations during its heyday. Right. But the, I think the fundamental, fundamental business model was vindicated. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is like my experience of WeWork early on was, oh, this is for small startups or solopreneurs or people who need space that don't have a traditional company. Now, post-pandemic, a lot of big companies with a remote and a distributed workforce are getting these subscriptions to like a WeWork so that all their employees, whenever they feel like using an office, can go into a WeWork. So kind of interesting how the model is almost flipped on its head where large companies now want to avail themselves of that. I actually remember mid-COVID, I can't say the name of the company, but there was this one company right. who uh, paid an exit fee of, I think it was $90 million wow. to get out of its current real estate lease and yeah. join WeWork. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a former New Yorker and I've written a bit, I mean, for, you know, living in New York City a bit about the challenge that's facing cities fundamentally if they can't refill those commercial office districts. They'll have to transform them into something new because they are going to, you know, they made up such a big portion of the city's lifeblood, its tax revenue, its daily commuters and everything like that. Sourcing, vetting, and hiring the right developers is tough. Well, Turing.com makes it easy. Turing's AI-powered platform combines tens of thousands of machine learning data signals, including tech skills, soft skills, and prior experience for the most deeply vetted developers ready to build for you. Start your no-cost two-week trial at Turing.com. So yeah, tell us, I guess, a little bit about your decision to uh, leave WeWork and, and create something new. And then, yeah, what was the sort of genesis of, of your new company, Wilco? Yeah, so um, I left WeWork at the end of 2020, and I was actually uh, joining a VC firm um, for a while. I did that, yeah. Uh -huh. But the origin story of Wilco starts way earlier. So 2013, I joined Handy, and I recruit a team. A lot of them were recent grads or, or um, um, you know, people who just graduated from either a boot camp or university. And I thought I'm right. going to hire the best and brightest and, and they'll be amazing engineers. And in a way I was right, but I was also wrong because those really smart people were great code writers, but they weren't necessarily great yeah. engineers. Because if you put them in mm -hmm. a team, they don't know how to act in a team setting, for example. And if all of a sudden they have to uh, maintain a production system, that's something they've right. never done before. 
But, you know, if you put them in a function and you say this function should be doing this and that, they will write amazing code yeah. to get you there. Right, right. In a vacuum, they can operate. But on a team, it's a little bit different, you're saying. Exactly. It's kind of like um, someone once gave me a great example. He said that um, if he wants to understand the state of the art in medicine, he's going to go to a recent med school grad. But if right. he needs someone to operate on his shoulder, he's going to go to a surgeon with 15 years of experience. <laughs> right, exactly. And it, it feels like kind of the same way in engineering, right? If you want to get the smartest solution to a coding problem, you want to go with a recent grad. But if, if you have a production system to maintain and a software development lifecycle and go security with the grizzled, implications. The grizzled, yeah, the grizzled experienced engineer, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I was trying to figure out ways to, to get them to gain that experience really quickly. And I reached out to a few boot camps and I said, why don't we create this sort of evening school where they get exposed to simulations of real world events? And mm. that way, within months, they'll gain the experience of years. Right. And all the boot camps said, this is a great idea, but we're not going to do it because we focus on zero to one and what you're saying is one to a hundred. So, you know, 2016, I moved back to Israel and I tried the Israeli boot camps um, after the New York boot camps wouldn't uh, take the bait. And I got the same response. And then 2020, I left WeWork and I said, all right, this is it. You know, even though I'm joining a VC, I am going to run this as a side project and I'm going to find someone to actually uh, manage the daily operations. Right. And I spoke to a few CTOs and they all said, great, we're sending students your way. This is amazing. So um, I reached out to a former colleague of mine and I told him about this idea and you know, I wanted to get him involved and he told me I was stupid. Um, so... I went ahead and asked him why. And he said, well, you know, you're going to get a class of six, maybe 10 students if you're lucky per semester. You're not really making a dent in the universe. Right. Let's figure out a scalable way to solve this. Mm. And by the way, another mutual friend of ours is thinking about the same space. So why don't the three of us get together and brainstorm? Right. And that's how we got together, the three co-founders of Wilco. And we started talking about this and we realized that this is bigger than what each one of us thought initially. So, you know, I came with my idea and my co-founders came with, with their ideas. And you realize that this is not just about taking recent grads and giving them accelerated experience. There is actually mm -hmm. a bigger problem in tech, which is developers don't have a way to practice. Mm. The only way to practice is on the job. But what happens when you practice on the job? First of right. all, it's very slow. You know, it's going to take you years to gain the initial experience. And after that, it's even slower because the more seasoned you are, the less likely you are to combine new types of scenarios. B, it's very error prone. People make catastrophic mistakes. And C, it doesn't provide equal opportunity because too much depends on the mentors that you get access to and the type of workloads that you're uh, having in your team. Uh, do you get exposed to production often? Um, how often right. do you touch design uh, rather than just, you know, write code? And so many yeah. other factors. And then another thing we noticed is that everything else that has to do with training of developers is usually top down and developers hate it. So we thought to ourselves, all right, we're looking for a way for developers to practice and it has to be fun. And we said, all right, what do other domains do? And the best example that we came up with were was aviation and flight simulators. Yes. 
And we said, all right, why don't we create the equivalent of a flight simulator for software development? What would that look like? Right. You kind of mentioned that you wanted people who had sort of like been in the fire. Like if you were to say a surgeon, you know, they've been there, done that, something goes wrong in the surgery or they find something unexpected, they know what to do. Flight simulator, same thing. You know, you can simulate a flight that's going perfectly, but then you can introduce some variables. Oh, what if this engine goes out? You know, what if the landing gear doesn't deploy? So when you're you know, offering this um, to users now through through Wilco. Yeah. How do you simulate, you know, the idea of being a working engineer on a team and what are some of the kind of different variables and challenges you can throw at them so that they can learn? Yeah. So uh, I, I think what you said, you know, makes a ton of sense. And I guess the best example is when you need to land on the Hudson, nothing is going to prepare you if you just fly <laughs> regular flights, right? Right. Um, you, you need to get on that simulator and, and try out different things. Right, so right. we saw... So, you know, we started doing that for software engineering and the obvious place to start was our past. And we said, all right, what are some interesting scenarios that we thought were really important in our professional development? And we started building on, on those. And then we said to ourselves, all right, why, why won't we take every type of scenario that happens to us and turn it into a quest? So, you know, if you think of the life of an engineer, one of the things we love doing, or at least love to say that we're doing, is postmortems, right? Something happened, yep. good or bad. We analyze what happened. We try to make it blameless, try to come up with interesting lessons to be learned and, and implemented in the future. Um, and then the product is a document that probably no one is going to read. A week after the, the document was prepared, no one else is going to read it anymore. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. the lessons were also logged in some sort of ticketing system, which right. you know, means they might be learned, but that's it, right? What if instead you would build a quest and actually allow every person on the team, whether existing or new people joining, to just experience that scenario again and come mm -hmm. up with what they would do differently or some right. of the things that worked well, but also some of the things that didn't work, work well, right? And, and if people actually experience it, then lessons are really internalized. So that was our approach to building everything so far. Nice. So if there are developers listening and they want to go check this out, they want to see what it's like, um, what's the best place for them to get started? Uh, they go to trywilco.com. Yeah. Uh, and they get to try Wilco. Uh, and uh, <laughs> sign up is free to the community edition. And you can try it out. Um, of course, we recommend uh, getting your entire team on board and, and really uh, making use of the, some of the advanced features that we have there. But if it's just for your own personal use, go ahead and, and sign up on the website. Very cool. All right, everybody, if you're listening, uh, you want to see if you've got what it takes to pass some of these quests or... You want to uh, get some new skills by trying out some sort of simulated real-world experiences, try Wilco. That's really cool. One other thing I would ask before we end the show, what to you are some of the funnest and most sort of like exciting challenges you have there? I'm sure you have lots, but um, for folks who are listening, what are some that you would recommend you think are particularly interesting? And are they drawn, I guess you said, from people's real-world experiences? Yeah, some of them are actually drawn from Wilco experiences, which is really cool. You know, we encounter a problem. And then we say, all right, let's turn this into a quest so others can play it. Right. One of the quests that I've seen to be very popular is the one we call Search Party, 
Um, and it's all uh-huh. about taking your application and adding search functionality to it. Um, nice. I think people like it because search is, first of all, one of those things that is cool. You know, as a user, you immediately get to see the result of what you've done. Um, yeah. And it touches both the front end and the back end. Um, and, you know, it just lets people go wild. And, and especially on the front end side, you can decide what it looks like. And, you know, you have sort of the requirements from the product and design team, but you can, uh, you know, take your freedom uh, within those guardrails. Um, so people really like that one. Um, I'm a big fan of all of them. You know, we have one that I think is really awesome, but it's one of the toughest, which is data seeding. A lot of people get stuck into it. It's where you're supposed to seed your database with, uh, with information so that, you know, new people coming in would have that script available to them as well. So they can see their local database, you know, the type of thing that you would encounter on your first day in a job. And that's one that's been really hard. So, you know, if, if people are looking for a tough challenge, I would say go for that one. And we have some cool quests together with, uh, with New Relic, for example, where you can test your observability skills and, and, touch not just the code, but, you know, the whole understanding of how do you even know that something's wrong in production, the tools you have to investigate it, et cetera. Right. Okay. Very cool. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. I want to shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and helped to spread some knowledge. Today, we are shouting out Zico, Z-I-C-O, who was awarded a lifeboat badge for providing a great answer to the question, How do you hide sensitive information in a response? All right. If you want to know how to do that, you can check it out in the show notes and appreciate you, Zico, coming on, giving an answer and spreading some knowledge around the community. Awesome work, Zico. This could be a quest. This could be a quest. Yeah, exactly. How to hide sensitive information in a response. All right, everybody. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions. Podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm on Freund. I'm a co-founder at Wilco. Uh, you can always go to trywilco.com to try us out. You can find me on Twitter. Um, you can find me at my home, but that would be weird. So Twitter is probably best. What's your handle on Twitter? On Freund. O-N-F-R-E-U-N-D. Very cool. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.